But the real reason I'm up here right now is to introduce you to our guest speaker. Um, I would like to uh, welcome Rustin Rossello. He's here with us from, uh, from steamy Arizona. Is it? No, it's dry. It's not steamy in Arizona. I've never been, so what do I know? But uh, from Arizona, he serves uh, as the pastor of the venue at Scottsdale Bible Chapel. He actually stepped into the role that our own Pastor Lucas had back in Scottsdale, Arizona. And, and so I know Pastor Lucas has been very excited to have uh, Rustin here with us. Uh, he's joined right, um, today by his wife, Jamie. We're glad to have both of you. So glad you could be here with us. He is going to bring the word, guys. So let's welcome him together. Uh, warm baby Glenn welcome for Rustin Rossellum. Well, thank you, Kevin. He is not lying to you at all. I've known Lucas for a lot of years. Uh, I met him when I was in the fifth grade. He was my camp counselor. So that kind of lets you know the fact that anybody would let that guy oversee children just is. <laughs> Kevin's also right. I've been following him around ever since. And so it's been a lot of fun. Lucas has been a friend and a mentor to me. And as uh, Kevin said, I took his job over when he left uh, to come be with you guys about four years ago. And uh, we've experienced a lot of fun growth back in Phoenix as well. It's currently 108 degrees back there, which is uh, whatever you convert that to Celsius. I'll let you guys do that math. But um, it is. It's still really hot back home. So our seasons are about reversed. You guys are dreading what's coming uh, for you in the winter. And we are excited about our winter, which is usually our nicest time. So uh, Lucas asked me to do something very specific today, which was to come and to talk a little bit about my life and give you a little bit of my testimony, and I just want you guys to know ahead of time, we're gonna get to know each other really well, really fast. And, uh, and I, the other thing I'd tell you is, I'm a crier, so uh, I'm a major weeper. And um, so I'm gonna cry a little bit, I just need you to know I'm comfortable with it, but uh, I don't need you to cry with me, but you can, uh, you can if you feel led. But um, I'll, I'll kinda start this way. I've known Lucas, like I said, since I was in the fifth grade. I've actually known Amy longer. Uh, I've known her since I was, I guess, like in the first or second grade, we came all the way through uh, Sunday school together. So I grew up in a Christian home, and I grew up knowing that uh, Jesus was Lord and Savior, and yet around five years old, that got kind of complicated as I experienced some sexual trauma. I was molested at age five, and so life got tough. I all of a sudden had this big Jesus that I heard about all the time at church, and yet I had all this stuff going on inside me that was very difficult to reconcile with that. I grew up very fearful and very insecure. And so my answer to those two things was to just simply become everybody's likable person. So I was gonna overcome all this scary stuff inside me by making sure that everyone liked me. And Amy and Lucas would con confirm for you, I was pretty good at it. I became kind of the popular guy and yet none of that solved the internal tornado of all of my emotions and fears. So I continued to kind of walk through most of life that way. I didn't really talk about it. Nobody knew in my family until I was about 23 years old. It's a lot of time for the enemy to work with all those secrets and those fears and do some wonderful little twisting and tormenting inside me. Uh, as I walked through high school and got into college, I kind of got tired of trying to do the church thing. And I got to a point in my life where I finally just said, you know what, I think I'm gonna try it on my own for a little while. And shortly after that, I met alcohol. And oh man, was that fun. It's this easy way for me to knock out all the scary stuff and make them be quiet. So I became a pretty proficient drinker. I kind of drank my way through college and I met my sweet wife shortly thereafter and we were married soon after that. The first two and a half years of our marriage was her simply watching me tear myself apart. Marriage is hard. For those of you who are in it, you know that the Apostle Paul 
calls it a profound mystery for a reason, and he never chose to do it. <laughs> kind of tells you something there, doesn't it? But marriage was difficult. I was supposed to be sacrificially giving of myself, and I didn't understand myself enough to give anything away. So I had to sit back and start to try and figure out how to take all these new feelings of a failure as a husband and all my behavior that was such a disaster and try and reconcile them. The only way I knew how to do that was to drink some more. So after about two and a half years of marriage, my wife finally started pleading with the Lord and said, okay, I'm done trying to change him. Either change his heart or get me out of this marriage because I don't know I can do it for much longer. And so as she turned me over to the Lord, the Lord turned me over to myself. It was a very sweet exchange. I remember my wife all of a sudden stopped bugging me about drinking. She stopped bothering me about my behavior, and we had this new kind of sense of peace. I thought, great, we finally figured it out. Little did I know that the Lord had taken my steering wheel away, and the only thing I had left was an accelerator and no brake. And so for the next eight months, I drank myself to sleep every single night. And I was drunk for eight straight months. At the end of that time, my wife was away on a trip, and I uh, had a big night out drinking, and I did something that evening that was horrible. I slept with someone who was not my wife. So the next morning, I woke up on the bathroom floor, having done the one thing that I swore I'd never do, which was cheat on my wife. I was an utter disaster. I have never felt emotional, spiritual, or relational torment like I did that morning on that bathroom floor. It was as if the Lord took the last 10 years of me running from him and just let me feel it all at one time. So as I walked through that time period, I realized that I couldn't do life with God. I wasn't very good at that, and I couldn't do life without him. So now I was left with one painful choice. I think I might just be done with life. And as I was sitting there contemplating ending my time on earth, I remember hearing the Holy Spirit nudging me very profoundly. And I remember hearing one thing inside my heart, give me one more chance. So I sat back and said, no. No, you've had all the chances you get. I think I'm done wrestling with you and everything else in this world. And I just remember feeling the Lord go, give me till Monday. So I went, okay, till Monday. Monday morning I got up. Uh, I lied to my sweet wife. I told her I was going to a Bible study. Not that she would have bought that at that particular time. But I walked into my first AA meeting and I began a recovery road that I am still on to this day. So I walked in, they patted me on the back. They said, come on in, we won't bite. I was like, that's very sweet of you. I must look like I'm in need of this meeting if you can pick me out of a crowd. And I walked in and I started that whole process. And then I sat down at my desk that day and my wife walked in uh, early afternoon. She closed the door behind her and she said, something's happened and you're gonna tell me what it is right now. And we proceeded to have the most difficult conversation that you can have as a married couple. She first started off and I said, well, I lied to you this morning. I didn't go to a Bible study. I went to an AA meeting and I'm an alcoholic. It was the first time I'd ever said it out loud. And I just remember her being so proud of me in that moment. And my heart just broke. I said, before you get so proud of me, we should probably talk about what me being an alcoholic for two and a half years in our marriage has looked like. After a couple of minutes of conversation, she just asked a painful question. And she said, have you ever cheated on me? And I said, yes, I have. And I said, and you've been an amazing wife to me, and I've been a terrible husband. You should leave right now. And she just looked at me, and I'll never forget, because what she said next didn't just change my life, it changed my view on God forever. She looked over and she said, I don't know what we'll look like when this is over, but I know that we'll get through this. We're gonna get you healthy, and we're gonna get you sober. 
I don't have a category for that. After who I'd been and what I'd become, I couldn't forgive myself, but my wife sat there, and here's where my view of God changed forever. I realized in that moment that if my sweet wife, who was capable of this type of love and forgiveness, even though she was a fallen, sinful human being, then Jesus Christ really might be the God of my wildest dreams. And for the, late, for the last eight years, that's what we've been walking out. We've been walking out a journey where we have been living my wildest dreams. We're so far into bonus territory, I can't even tell you what it's like to be alive today. I should have been dead on a bathroom floor, and instead, the guy who woke up, suicidal, adulterous, and alcoholic, is now gonna preach for you this morning, and that is an act, surely, of the greatest God you've ever heard of, and I hope that's what you hear today as we share God's word. So let me pray for us. Lord, we come to you today, all of us broken in different ways. Lord, this is a, a place down here on earth that you've walked, and so you know our pain, you know our hearts, you created us, and so you sit back now and you join each and every one of us as we come into what today has been the greatest lesson that I've pulled from your scriptures is this idea of I have to listen so closely to your voice and I have to be so attuned to your Holy Spirit that I am constantly focused on what it is that you are drawing me to, knowing that you have a plan for my life, knowing that you are good. And so, Lord, that's the focus for all of us. So I pray over Bayview Glen this morning and I ask, Lord, that every person seated in this room or every person that will watch this video will have a sweet moment with you as we come together and Holy Spirit, we give you permission to peel back the layers of our hearts and do a deep work in us as we talk through worldly grief and godly grief. And we pray this in your name, amen. So that's what we're gonna do, church. We're gonna talk about these two forces, worldly grief and godly grief. And my goal for today is super simple. It's to do this with you. I want you to be able to delineate between godly grief and worldly grief. Because if I don't miss my guess, a lot of you are like me with just a different story. And so what I want you to hear today is that a lot of the thoughts that we have and the things that we agree with deep down inside us, I'm convinced might not be the Lord. And I wanna help you figure out what it looks like to lead a godly, free life in Christ. And to do that, we're gonna go to 2 Corinthians 7. We're going to be in verses 8, 9, and 10. So if you've got your Bibles, you can make your way there, but I'm going to read it out loud for us. This is Paul to the church in Corinth. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, excuse me, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, when we look at these two uh, first verses here, verses eight and nine, they're really a setup for what we're gonna get into in the meat, which is verse 10. But here's the deal. We get a wonderful glimpse. You can glaze over verses eight and nine, and they're kind of wordy, and it's a little tough to figure out what Paul's saying, but I think sometimes we can do this. We can take the apostles and we can almost elevate them to a place of like just shy of divinity and it makes it really hard for us to follow them. And I'm not saying that these weren't incredible godly men. Without a doubt, these are unbelievable guys. But 
sometimes we make it as if the Holy Spirit they had is better than the Holy Spirit we have. And that's just not the case. And what Paul's doing here in this opening verse is he's saying, listen, here's what I did. I sent off a letter, okay? First Corinthians, all right? He fires off First Corinthians. Anyone read that? That is not a nice letter between friends, all right? It is highly corrective, and Paul is kind of taking them to task on some of these issues that they are dealing with, and he's not being gentle about it. And what he's saying here is this. Anybody ever fired off an email and gone, ugh, and just cringed? Because you're like, yeah, just because it's tough. You're like, ooh, I wish I'd either thought that one through more, or maybe I was being honest, but maybe I was too honest. Listen now to this with that context in mind. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul's saying, I sent my email and then my heart hurt because I was worried about you, church in Corinth. That's the reality. But what Paul's saying here is important for each and every one of us. At times we think, oh, Paul went, Paul's going to go to Rome. He's going to do stuff. And he knows how all of it's going to work out because he's really in tune with God. No. Paul's being led, just like you and I, by the Holy Spirit to go and do things for the kingdom. And he's sitting back and going, okay, I'm going to wander in. I'm going to do some ministry here. We'll see how it works out. And then he does it. And then he sits back to see what God does with his efforts that he felt led by the Holy Spirit to do. This is really important because the Christian life can sometimes be super confusing because we go, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? Sometimes you gotta do what Paul does and you've gotta be led by the Holy Spirit and sit back and let the results be in God's hands and not yours. Verse nine kind of talks about this realignment and he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You felt a godly grief and suffered no loss through us. Verse 9 kind of works this way. I, I do well with pictures. I'm a visual learner. So it's really helpful for me to sit back sometimes and see it this way. Paul is likening the church almost like a spine. So I want you to think of the human spine. It has all these little vertebrae that stack on top of each other. They've got discs in the middle. Some of you with back pain know this all too familiar, right? And what happens is vertebrae get out of alignment. And so they'll start to get out of alignment. And these two center pieces will start to impinge on the spinal cord, and it creates inflammation and pain and all these nerves get going every which direction and it's no fun. Then you have a chiropractor who comes in and all of a sudden goes and painfully, sometimes violently, manipulates the spine back into its designed position, removing that tension on the spinal cord. What Paul's saying here is, listen, Corinthian church, you, like a spine, were out of alignment but you were moved back in with, into repentance, back into alignment with God, which is where we as believers belong. We belong in alignment with God where we can be led freely by the Holy Spirit so that repentance can occur and we can move back in the direction of the Lord. Now, here's what drives me crazy. We throw churchy words around all the time. You hear words like repentance and sanctification and justification, and, and you're sitting there sometimes, and we're not all working off the same definition. So I want to define a term today, and I hope you never forget it, and it's this, uh, it's this word repentance, but we're going to see it in verse 10. So let's do this. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, and here's a key phrase, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That word repentance so many times how many of you, don't raise your hands, but just, I want you to ask the question, how many of you think repentance is a really churchy word for I'm sorry? 
Like, God, I repent of my sin. God, I'm sorry I did that thing. It's not, church. It's not a word for I mourn my sin. It's this. Repentance is the Greek word metanoeo, or metanoia is a simple way to say it. And this is how it breaks down. Meta, meaning after, or noeo, to think. Simple way to remember this word, what it really means is it's to change what you think or to change your mind. This is so important because now that you hear that, to change your mind, that's not just I'm sorry, is it? That's not the point of this word. The point of this word is, is different, and, and here's what it looks like. I'll use myself. Um, I, I'm probably the only one that gets angry in this room, okay? So I'll just use me as an example here. But imagine getting angry, and for this, I need you to understand how sin gets into your life. The enemy does, sin is not like the flu, okay, church? You don't just catch sin. It's not something that all of a sudden you're walking along and you touch the wrong handrail on the way to the subway or whatever, and now all of a sudden you got sin. That's not how it works. You agree that sin is better than God. That's how sin gets in your life. And you go, Rustin, that's crazy. I would never do that. Yes, you do, and here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like for me. I come in. And all of a sudden, my kids do something, and I all of a sudden start to get upset. And I make a choice in that moment that I have the right to be angry. So instead of saying calm and being patient with my children, I decide that what they've done is, is kind of do a response on my behalf, and it's anger. So I choose in that moment, and I go, that's it. I'm angry. Now you've made dad mad, right? And so I choose to be angry in that moment. What I'm choosing is anger is better than patience and relying on Christ. Do you guys see how that works? You can do the same thing with fear. That's a great one. A lot of times we get afraid, church. You know, fear's not awesome. It's actually a sin. It's trusting in yourself instead of in God. All of us do it, but what happens is we, we decide that fear is better than God. You're like, no one would ever do that. Here's how it works. You come into a situation and you go, I'm really afraid that this is gonna happen, so I'm gonna worry about it. Okay, perfect. So you start to worry and worry and worry. Worrying is the enemy so good at this. He comes in and he says, if you stay afraid, it'll keep that thing that you're worried about on the forefront of your mind. I have this great little tool to help you never be surprised. It's called fear. And you can dial fear up and down. This is the lie. As high as you want or as low as you want. We go, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit's the one who prepares us for everything for life and godliness. And yet, at times, we say, no, 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 I'll be afraid because it'll help me control what's going on in my mind. You just chose fear as better than God. Do you see how that works? And that's what happens. That's how sin gets into our life. And so, with that choosing, there has to be a counter move in the other direction. That's repentance. That's where repentance comes in. And what we don't see so many times is how good God is on the other side of our repentance. So, in this situation, God is here in my situation, in my place here, and he's going, listen, child, turn from that thing. Turn away from that thing. I always think of myself as a child in God's presence, like my little three-year-old son, and I'm just engaging in something that's not good for me, and the Holy Spirit comes along and starts nudging us, or like Paul says, we're grieved, and now we turn away, and we turn back into the arms of a loving God who's going, I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad you've chosen to turn from fear to turn from anger and to proceed back towards me. That's how repentance actually works. That's what God has set up is that we turn back to him away from this thing that we have become so enamored with, anger, fear, sexual sin, all the things that we get wrapped up in. Here's a great quote and it ties directly to what we're doing here. It's Ray Stedman 
And he says this, a genuinely repentant person is one who has turned his life around and now proceeds in a new and changed direction. Do you see how different that is from a simple, God, I'm really sorry that I did this thing. It's more than I'm sorry. It's a life change and a new direction. So once we've repented, we felt one of two things, and I want us to talk about them today. And the first one is this. I want us to talk about godly grief, which is conviction, okay? A function of the Holy Spirit, and that's its key. Its key is that it has a purpose, like Paul said. You felt a godly grief and felt no long-term loss, but it's a function of the Holy Spirit. Rustin, where do you get that the Spirit functions in that? Church, I'm so glad you asked. Let's look at John 16, 7 and 8. It says right here, this is Jesus talking. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes in and he lets you know, hey, that thing's not best for you. That thing, Rustin, that fear that you're clinging to, that anger that you're clinging to, I have a better way if you will simply trust me and obey my plan for your life. But that requires something really hard. That requires humility, doesn't it? Every, it that's everybody's favorite word, right? Everyone's going, oh, I love to be humble. It's always, I love the person that goes, I'm exceedingly humble. Oh, are you? Doesn't sound like it. But there's a reality here that that requires humility for us to admit that what we're doing is not right to be able to turn from it. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He comes in in conviction. Now, here's something I see in the church all the time. This is kind of a sidebar, but another big word that we got to define, sanctification. This is a word, and here I'll define it very simply for you. It's a lifelong process of God making us look more like him. That's what sanctification is. It happens after conversion. Here's what we act like sometimes, church, and I don't know if your conversion experience was different with mine than mine, but did anybody get converted and find out they were sinless? That happened to any of you? Because it did not happen to me. The reality is that sometimes we act as if that's the case. We come to know Jesus, we immediately do this. We start buttoning ourselves up, we like roll in and we're like all cleaned up now and it's like, my wife's here, she looks good, I look good, my kids look good. My, my kids look good, and we're good to go there, and now we're at church, and we're hanging out, and things are cooking, and then all of a sudden, you come down the road, you've been a Christian for 20 years, and you find anger in your life that you've never addressed, and now all of a sudden, you failed yourself, you failed your wife, you failed your kids, you failed your church, you failed God. You didn't fail anybody. The reality is you just misunderstood sanctification. You misunderstood the lifelong process of Christ making you look more like him, and sometimes we act like it should be instantaneous, and it's not. And we don't have a category for, well, wait a minute, but I'm not cleaned up yet. I, I must need to wait until I'm all sanctified until God can use me. Nope, he uses broken sinners every single day. That's reality. So he didn't need to clean you up. He'll use you right where you are. Just continue to have a humble heart and let the Holy Spirit work. And the best story in the Bible, to, to use an example for this point, is the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It comes out of the book of Luke. And I'll paraphrase it really quickly. A son comes to his dad. He comes up and he says, Dad, I, I want my inheritance. And at great cost to the family, the father gives it to him. He runs off. He squanders it in wild living. The next thing you know, he's penniless. He's jobless. He can't find employment. 
He finds himself longing after the food that the pigs are eating, and he has kind of a bathroom floor moment, if you will. And he's standing there, and he goes, the servants in my father's home live better than I do. So he turns and heads home. He gets home, and the scriptures detail his arrival very, very closely. They say, while he's still a long way off, the father runs to him. Time out, because there's two cool details in that. One, if someone's a long way off and you see them, what must you be doing? You must be looking for them. You see, the father was anxiously awaiting the son's arrival. And secondly, the father runs. Now, here's what did not happen in Middle Eastern culture at that time. You did not run if you were a man. It was undignified. Unless you were in battle... You did not gird yourself up with your robes in order to run. So when you ran, robes kind of went everywhere, and it was undignified to run. And yet this father does not care about cultural norms. He goes to get his son. And when he gets to his son, he gets there, and he sees him torn up in rags, covered in just muck and mire, penniless, filled with sin and debauchery. And he comes up to the son, and he grabs him by the hair, and he starts to rub his nose in all of his sin. Not how that story goes, is it? It's not. Because what the father does when he gets there is he he gets to his son and he embraces him. He holds him and he sees that he's in rags and he commands immediately, bring a robe to be put on him, put shoes on his feet. And then he does something absurd. He takes a ring and he puts a ring on his finger. That's not just a welcome home. That is with the putting of a ring back on his finger. He now has been fully reinstated into the family, including a share in the inheritance that is left. It's extravagant. It's unheard of. It's grace amazing in nature. What I need you to see today, church, when it comes to conviction and how it works in your life is that God set up the perfect system for your sin. And the process of him making you look like him over a lifetime is a prodigal son moment over and over and over again. He's just going to keep bringing you home. Since that bathroom floor, church, I can't tell you how many times I've been brought home. Where the Lord just keeps bringing me back. Okay, Rustin, we're going to do fear now. Okay, we're going to address marriage. Okay, we're going to talk about redeeming what it looks like for you to have a healthy understanding of what it means for you to be a person. I got so much more than I bargained for on that bathroom floor that day. (laughs) When the Lord just keeps showing up and going, I have a better way. I have a better way. I have a better way. Let me bring you home over and over again. And here's the best news yet. That is totally to your advantage that it works that way. Some of you right now are going, oh, seriously, I got to do this for a lifetime? Yeah, because here was the other option. He backs up a dump truck full of your sin the day you get converted and goes, climb the mountain, I'll see you at top. But that's not how it works. Because if that was how it worked, you would look at that mountain of your sin, you would gaze towards the top, not be able to see it because the clouds are probably covering it, and you'd never set foot on that mountain. So Jesus did this. He went to the cross. He paid for your mountain. And then he doesn't even let you look at it because he knows it's more than you can handle. Then he steps back and he goes, listen, will you just walk with me every day as I continue to bring you home as we climb the mountain of your sin that I already paid for, by the way? So that's why conviction can work the way it does. Because your mountain's been paid for, and so now I will simply let you know over and over again, that thing's not best for you. I've paid for it already, but I need you to turn from it and come back to me. I need you to repent and come back to me. You see, the challenge for most of us in this room right now is you're sitting back going, the news just can't be that good. 
Well, that's exactly what it's called in the Bible. Anybody know the word for good news in the Bible? Gospel. That's it. If you're sitting back right now going, the news can't be this good, that's right. Your news can't be this good, but his can. Because his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His news is better than your news. So if that's what godly grief looks like, then we gotta look at the other side of the ball. And this is what most of us miss from time to time. Worldly grief. Worldly grief is condemnation. And this is what it is. It looks like agreement with the enemy's accusing voice. You see, that's the problem. Most of us as believers, we forget that when we signed up to have the God of the universe as Savior, you also signed up to have one heck of a fist fight from his enemy. And really, that's what we're living in. We're living in some enemy territory down here. This deal ain't over yet, and we're in an ongoing fight with what John 12, 31 calls the enemy or the ruler of this world. Most of us don't think that we're living in constant condemnation. I'm about to prove to you, and I don't want you to raise your hands or anything like that. It'll get embarrassing. That's not the point. I want you to make a better statement as you move through the rest of your life. If any of you ever sit back and you say to yourself, you know what, I just can't forgive myself for that thing that I did. I just can't forgive myself. I feel too terrible. It's just too awful. I can't let myself off the hook. Here's what I say. I want you to make a better, more theologically accurate statement from this day forward. I want you to simply say this. Jesus Christ's sacrifice was not enough to cover that thing that I did because that's what's true for you. And here's what's so great. You sit back and you go, Jesus Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough to cover that divorce that I got. His sacrifice wasn't enough to cover that addiction that I wrestle with. It wasn't enough to cover the fact that I cheated on my wife or my shortcomings as a father or a mother. He wasn't enough to cover the friend that I was to that person so long ago, the way that I wounded them and the lack of remorse that I had for so long. His sacrifice just simply wasn't enough. And so now, church, we're gonna do the greatest thing that we've ever done. We're gonna take our piddly feeling bad, we're gonna place it on the perfect sacrifice of the lamb, and now we'll call it enough. Can we just stop doing that? Can we stop mutilating the blood of the lamb by trying to be our own savior? Because you've got to imagine God in the midst of his grace, he'll forgive it, but it's got to break his heart. When we sit back and we go, I just can't forgive myself, but do you know what I went through for it? I paid for it. I bore your guilt, I bore your shame so that you wouldn't have to live in condemnation on an ongoing basis. I did it. But we act like this. We act like there's a loophole in the cross. Our sin got around it, and now we're the ones who have to pay for it. But if I took anybody in this room and I put you in front of a hurting person who was wrestling with condemnation, you would sing a completely different song for them than you apply to yourself. You would tell them about God's amazing grace, his extravagant love, his care for them. You would talk day and night about how good God is. But when it comes to you, you apply a completely different voice. And I'll tell you why. Let's look real quick at Revelation. This is 12, verse 10. This is John on the island of Patmos, and he says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, of the, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. I wanna paint a picture of a heavenly courtroom for you, and I will use myself as an example. In this courtroom, God sits on the throne as he always does, 
And over here, we have this, this accuser, the enemy. And he sits back and he goes, Rustin? You want to use Rustin? Really? You mean the guy who blew up a marriage, who's blown up his life, who has a wake of wreckage behind him, and you want to use him to proclaim your truth? You want to use him to tell his story? No, no, no. Rustin's far too broken. He's too uh, unpure to carry any semblance of God. Then over here, it's what John 12 refers to as my advocate. This is Jesus Christ. He stands there and he goes, yeah, Rustin, my son. Yeah, the one who is righteous because of my blood. The one who stands redeemed. You see, my righteousness was imputed to him. His sin was imputed to me. I bore it on the cross. I will use Rustin to whatever degree I choose to because nothing you say has any weight. You, you see, because I stand completely in authority. My name is above all names. It is above every name and everything has been put under subjection under my feet. And where does Rustin stand? I stand right in the middle every day of my life. I have to sit back and decide which voice I want to listen to. Do I want to listen to my accuser or to my advocate? Do I want to have hope in the God of my wildest dreams? Or do I want to go back to believing a lie that I can only be as much as I can muster out of others? Some of us have been listening to the wrong voice for far too long. And my hope, church, today is that you see that and that it stops. Because that's the beauty of what Christ has bought for us. I want to do this. I want to start kind of applying this to our lives in a pretty specific way. And I want to give you kind of a litmus test. But first, I want to qualify something because I can hear every heart in this room shouting at me. Yeah, but Rustin, here's the thing. I hurt somebody with all of my sin. I actually uh, wounded someone in the midst of the way that I went down. And I, I say to you this, I know, so did I. I had lots of apologies to go back and make. I had lots of relational reconciliation that I had to go back and work through. And what I want to tell you today is that there's a way to do that, but here's the problem. Because most of us never do the vertical restoration like I'm describing through conviction and repentance, it makes it almost impossible for us to ever get to that horizontal reconciliation. Until you go to the Lord and you do some deep work turning from condemnation, guilt, and shame, it is impossible to look at someone and give them an apology or come back and reconcile, make an amends in a way that's necessary. Now, what I'm about to do could be a 40-minute sermon, but I'm going to do it in an example, so give me some grace here, okay? When we come back to someone to reconcile, having already gone to the Lord and worked through our own condemnation, guilt, and shame, I need you to know there's a way to do that that's that owns what we've done. And for me, this is what it sounds like. And I've had people who I've shown up to to basically make an amends and they've not been happy to see me and really didn't want to hear me out. But this is what softened the blow. I sat down and I looked at one guy in particular and I just said, listen, I, I just want to talk to you. And he said, I really don't have anything to say to you, man. And I'd wounded him and his family. And I sat down and I said, listen, I want you to know I'm not here for me. I'm not here to try and redeem your opinion of me I'm simply here because you deserve to hear me say some things. And I got his attention. He said, all right, go ahead. I said, listen, what I did was wrong. My sin, my behavior, and my shortcomings, they affected your life in a big, big way. And I came here today to, hear you, to have you hear me say this. I know I was wrong. I, didn't, I don't want you to walk through life thinking that I go through even a single day thinking I was right or I wasn't sinful in this way. 
All I'm doing today is I just want you to hear me say, I am so deeply sorry for the way that I've affected you. I completely own that, and I want you to, to hear me say, I'm asking if you'll forgive me, though I leave that decision in your hands. That's it. I said, you just deserve to hear me say those words today. You know what he looked at me and said? Actually, thank you. That means a lot. It's like, great. I mean, we're not making plans to fish and whittle anytime soon, but all of a sudden, me and this guy had a moment where he got to hear someone who had heard him say, I know that I was wrong. Church, that can't happen until me and the Lord have reconciled this way. Because if I don't, then here's what happens, and some of you are guilty of this. You'll sit back at times and you'll go, Rustin, I just can't forgive myself until that person forgives me. Church, this may sting, but it's true. Jesus Christ is not the, the Lord of your life at that point. That person is. Because what you just said is that person's forgiveness means more than his forgiveness. Okay, well, congratulations. The throne of your life is now occupied by that person. They need to come off of that throne. Christ needs to go back to his rightful place as the Lord of your life, and you need to put them back in the place of a fallen, broken human being who may never forgive you, by the way. And you go back, you do your best for relational reconciliation when the time is right, led by the Holy Spirit. And then if they choose not to participate in that process, you can't be held captive by their lack of forgiveness. You have to go back to serving God. Otherwise, that person has just become the governor on your life of what you can accomplish. That's not gonna work, church. You serve a king, not another human being. Don't let fear of man take you over. Okay, with that qualification in place, here's what it looks like a lot of times. Uh, for girls, okay, for women, here's the deal. I sit back, and it may work differently in Canada than it does in the States, but here's what it sounds like in the States. I go to a coffee shop, and I'm sitting there reading a book or studying or doing whatever, writing a sermon, and all of a sudden, I will sit there, and I will hear two women talking a couple of tables over. And these two women will sit back, and one of them will say, you know, I'm just such a bad mom, or I'm such a terrible wife, and so, ah, I just, I, this is never gonna change because it's just who I am. And then comes the response from the woman who she's sitting with. She said, well, no, I think you're a great mom or you're a great wife because I've seen you on Pinterest or I've seen you on Facebook and you do all these. It takes everything in me to not throw up in that moment. Okay, church? Because here's the reality. You have like a three-minute captive audience with this poor hurting woman and you're gonna talk about her Facebook page? No, we can do better than that. You gotta fire the most potent bullet in your gun. You've gotta fire the words of God back over her life. Because someday her Pinterest page is gonna pass away and she's not gonna care. But deep down her soul is hurting and what she needs to hear is she has a savior who would not talk about her the way that she's talking about herself. Speak the words of God back over this woman who feels like a failure as a wife and a mother and look at her and say, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. Fire Psalm 34, 22 at her and say, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Look at her and say, sister, I love you so much and you probably have areas where you need to grow, but I will grow in them with you, support you while you grow, but you need to know God's view of you is nothing like what you have a view of you. That has to change. And I love you too much to sit here today and listen to you believe a lie. So let's make a change. If you want to start having conversations like that, just be ready for this place to be filled up. Because when you start supporting people and speaking truth over their life, they will long for more of who Christ is. Men, you're no better off. We do the same thing. It just sounds like I'm a failure in different areas. Well, I'm such a terrible husband, right? Okay. I, I'm, I'm just not hardworking enough at my job. 
I'm all these things. You guys are getting ready to launch into a family series. Lucas will just hit this one out of the park. This is his wheelhouse. But you know what? If you're looking at a guy sometime and he's standing there in front of you and he's a husband and he goes, God just can't ever use me, remind him of this. You have one of the most unbelievable jobs in the world. God trusted you with one of his beloved daughters to protect and to honor, to care for, to both stand in front of in protection and to stand behind in honoring her. Do you think he would trust just anybody with that job or might you wanna go home and start taking a few steps in living in fullness? See guys, we don't talk to each other that way. It's just easier to just, yep, yeah, you may be. Let's stop doing that. Here's what I want to do. I want you to do something for yourself. I just talked about kind of the what you do for others part. Here's what I want you to do for you. Some of you need to have a moment with the Lord today, and we're going to go into a wonderful response song right now, King of My Heart. And I just need you to know that God is good. But some of you need to do business with the Lord. You need to take a minute today, and here's what I want you to do. Repent of condemnation. Okay, now don't give me the church answer. You know, Russ, I'd like to go home and pray about that. You don't need to pray about that, okay? You just need to do business with the Lord. If something I said today tips you off and you go, ooh, he, he kind of sunk my battleship with that whole Jesus Christ sacrifice wasn't enough thing. If that's true for you in some place in your life, you can take a minute before we sing this song and just go, Lord, I repent of condemnation. Lord, I turn from that today. Matter of fact, quietly where you are right now, church, everybody just bow your heads, Okay? Everybody bow your heads. If that's you today and you know that that is true of you, I'm gonna pray out loud and I want you to quietly, by yourself, echo this prayer after me. I'm gonna lead you through repenting of condemnation and breaking agreement with the enemy. So here's what it sounds like. I got a little of this in my own life right now. This will be good for me. Jesus, I come to you today. I come in full recognition of my sin. I know that for far too long, I have believed a lie from the enemy. That lie is that I am to live condemned to live in guilt, and to live in shame. But that is not who I am today. And so, Lord, I repent, and I turn from these lies, and I turn back to you. And I receive your forgiveness. I know that you washed me clean, that on the cross, your, your penalty was enough, and I accept it. I will not add to it with my piddly feeling bad. And now, I break all agreements with a condemning voice. I will not listen to the lies of the enemy, I will not sit back and let him pick at me anymore. He is a liar. And so I break any agreements with condemnation today. I break the lie that I'm not enough. I break the lie that the Lord can't use me. I break the lie that I have to live in fear, that my life has a ceiling on it. I break these lies today in Jesus' name, and I declare that there is no condemnation for me who is in Christ Jesus. I declare that I serve a king, and I will act like royalty as I pursue him. And I declare that I will have everything in this life that the Lord wants for me. Restoration, love, care, peace, and emotional uh, fervor in every way. Lord, would you come after me as I learn to walk this out? I pray this in Jesus' name.